names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Season 6 of Escaping Society. This is Episode 61, The Last Pig in Europe. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we're in the occupied lands of the green-headed coneflower, the Cherokee, and sometimes even the monarch butterfly that we saw this morning. <laughs> this episode is was going to be about just 1984, but we decided to kind of um, do 1984-slash-animal farm as we had read both of those books on our break. 1984, which, by the way, was originally going to be called The Last Man in Europe. Mm. And both were written by George Orwell, a.k.a. Eric Blair. I kind of like Eric Blair better. He had a short but powerful life um, that included knuckle tattoos from his time serving in Burma, tramping or playing hobo to write about poverty. Um, He even tried to get arrested over Christmas one time to write about what it would be like in prison over the holiday. And uh, he fought against... Franco's fascism in the Spanish Civil War and got shot in the neck. His wife worked in the censorship department at the Ministry of Information during World War II. Yeah, I love that. I thought that was really interesting if you've ever read 1984. (laughs) And I guess this episode is uh, just going to kind of talk about his books, um, Animal Farm in 1984, and I just wanted to share some of his experiences leading up to those writings. Animal Farm was written first in 1945, and then 1984 was published in 1949. And that was actually his final book. Like I said, he had a short life. I think he died at age 47 or 48. And Gumby, you were talking about um, like the similarities of the book and kind of like when someone has something important to say, they try to share it maybe in different ways. Yeah. I, uh, and let me start off like, you know, it's kind of intimidating talking about this book because I know people that are into this tend to be really into George Orwell's books. (laughs) Like, um, pretty much everybody considers themselves like when they get into it, some kind of scholar because they get curious, they get, uh, inspired, they start doing research, Um, so let me say that we're probably going to say a lot of interpretations that we have that you'll disagree with. You'll say, oh no, they got it all wrong. The book wasn't about that. Um, we're saying what we got from the book, what, how it struck us kind of the parallels. And, um, I've got reason to believe that a lot of my interpretations of the book even disagree with George Orwell himself. Um, it sounds like he possibly, and it's, it's strange when you start trying to get underneath the book, like what he thought, because you almost feel like you're going down a double think rabbit hole in that, in the research. (laughs) You know, you start wondering, like, I wonder what kind of spin they put on, like, just even writing about George Orwell himself. Um, But yeah, so I just wanted to get that out of the way to say that, because uh, I know from talking with people and from doing some of the research we did getting ready for this podcast, that a lot of the things I think about the book go blatantly against... um, what a lot of other people who have spent a lot of time studying this stuff think. And to respond to what you said, Teresa, um, Animal Farm in 1984, um, I've heard people say they are about very different things. 
And I read them both when I was much younger, late teens, early 20s, I can't remember. Um, I think I remember reading 1984 when I was like first, like 20 years old, and I was living in an abandoned house and like thinking about being a hobo. And, uh, you know, it was really an, an interesting time in my life to to digest these ideas. Um, and we just read them through again. We had the, I think they were both on your uh, phone, right? Yeah, I got them free. I'll try to post them on our Facebook page, the link to those. Yeah, and if you can get a, a hardcover of the book, I highly recommend it. I do not <laughs> like reading things digitally myself, but it's better than just not having it at all. So sometimes we suck it up and read on the darn phone. Um, but one of the things that struck me as we read 1984 and then just read Animal Farm, like Teresa said, this was supposed to be about 1984. And then as we read Animal Farm, it's like, wow, that's really juicy too. Like, And there's so many parallels. What I felt like when I was reading Animal Farm is this is 1984. It's a different way of saying the same story. And I believe we're going to talk about the parallels between the two books shortly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, we'll explain why we say that. And uh, again, we're not telling you this is what the book's about. We're just getting a conversation going. This is what we found interesting about the book. Um, So, you know, when I think about people that have a new idea or a deep idea or a challenging idea, One of the first people I think of is Buddha, actually. Um, And it was said that, I can't remember the name. I used to know this uh, Pali word. I think it's Pali or Sanskrit. Um, It was Upaya something, but it means um, like, shit, my brain's going blank, but uh, skillful means, basically. So he would say a sutra, give a talk. And depending on the audience, the talk would sometimes almost be like, almost contradictory. He would tailor the truth, the same simple truth, but he would tell it in a different way to try to reach more people because he realized that not everybody hears things the same. If you say things one way, it might reach a small group of people the way you intended it, but it's going to reach a lot more people in a way you did not intend it. They're going to filter it through their minds. They're going to interpret it. I just actually read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called uh, Blink, it was about snap judgments, and you know it was full of all these studies about how we interpret things and change them, and how marketing firms and and, and politicians use that. Um, but yeah, Buddha was knowledgeable about that and used that. And another person, Daniel Quinn. Um, when I read Ishmael, and then I read My Ishmael, and then I read the story of B, I'm like, this is the same basic truth. He's telling it in different ways. For different audiences. I felt like it was the same thing, the same basic thing that Buddha was doing. And I feel like George Orwell was doing something similar with 1984 and Animal Farm. I do not feel like they were two books about totally separate things. I felt like they were describing almost exactly the same thing from two wonderfully different viewpoints. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, as we keep saying, we wanted to do a book, uh, a podcast on 1984. I found myself almost, in some ways, liking Animal Farm better um, because it's so simplified. It's like all the fat's cut off. It's boiled down to the essence of this spirit, this feeling. It's like this profound, complicated idea turned into a haiku. 
Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I felt about animal animal farming. At this point in my life, there's so much freaking complexity and talking and words and blah, blah, blah out there that I feel like maybe I'm more attracted to simplicity at this point. And maybe not when I was younger, it was the complexity that was like, whoa, that just blew my mind. But yeah. Yeah, I, I felt the same way after reading 1984. I was blown away. But then we read Animal Farm and I was thinking, this is almost this is almost kind of to me explaining how it got to be 1984. Yeah, it was like when the revolution happened and yeah. 1984 was describing the time after the revolution. Yeah. And that that in and of itself was profound because if you think about revolutions and you think about in Animal Farm like what they were trying to do, they were trying to like gain their independence and their freedom and what it led to. And then talking about in 1984, a lot of the messages like power for power's sake. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a quote, oh, I don't remember where I read it now, but um, it was something like, uh, you know, revolutions aren't for revolution's sake. Revolutions are for like getting the next person in power. Mm-hmm. And I think it was talking about dictatorships. And as we've said in other podcasts, the quote from The Who, meet the new boss, same as the old yeah. boss. So. so, yeah, some uh, comparisons to Animal Farm um, in 1984. So both were set in England. Um, both, I believe, used the word comrade. Considering that uh, um, George Orwell's from England, that's kind of a <laughs> yeah. no-brainer. Um, Gumby, did you want to talk about the revolution? Um. Yeah, so, you know, both were set in England, both used the word comrade, which was interesting considering the uh, the Bolshevik res- rev- <laughs> revolution. Mm. Um, it, one of the, another thing that struck me that was similar in both books that was really unique that I don't see in other books that are written about, like, you know, this type of thing, and there's a lot of dystopian novels out now, including one by Daniel Quinn, actually, after Dachau. Um mm. That it was uncertain if the past was better. I thought that was interesting. In 1984, Winston um, Smith takes this big risk in talking to an old prole. Um, prole in the book is short for proletarian, um, the poor people. And he's really curious to see what were these times like. He's starting to question this bullcrap that they're feeding him. And like, well, if these are all lies, and I'm in the department of, what was it? Did, uh, that he worked? He was in, I believe, the, the Ministry of Truth. Ministry of Truth. And so it was part of his job to rewrite history. He knew they were lies. But what was the past if these were lies? And the only person that might be able to give him a straight answer is an old person. And uh, the only person that might dare to give him a straight answer is an old person of the poor people, the proles that seem to have more freedom. And he talked to this old guy in a bar, and all the old guy kept talking about was uh, what seemed to Winston as inanities, unimportant things. He couldn't, no matter how much he asked the question or what way he asked the question, get a sense of whether capitalism, which preceded this uh, English socialism, Ingsoc, in the book, Mm -hmm. was better or worse. The old guy just talked about differences. And so it left it vague. And we found it again in Animal Farm. Um, Towards the end, you know, what Napoleon, the pig, kept threatening the animals with, and, and his um, spokesman, was that Squeaker? Oh, good Lord, if you wouldn't have said it. Squealer? Squealer. Squealer. Mm-hmm. What they kept asking is, you don't want Jones to come back, the farmer um, that ran Manor Farm before the animals took it over and turned it into Animal Farm. And at the end, it was said in the book, 
they couldn't remember for sure whether things were better or worse under Jones. So again, an ambiguity. You know, it wasn't that the past was better necessarily, but was it worse? And I felt like that was really interesting to have in both books, um, to leave that open. Almost like Orwell, what I felt like was he was almost saying, it's irrelevant. It's unimportant. Of course they're going to say, this new thing is better. And you might waste all your energy trying to prove them wrong, that the old way is better. But what if the old way also sucked? What if that spurred on the revolution? And, um, you know, that was just an interesting way to approach that, that storytelling, I thought. Yeah, definitely. And um, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more later, but you can see that happening in our culture now, how, I mean, shit, even, you know, Gumby, I can't speak for you, but for me, I can't remember stuff. And I often wonder, like, is that a memory? Is that accurate? Or have I completely forgotten all of that? And, and it's like now, our generations, you know, future generations, they're not going to know any other way. Like what it is now is what they know. Yeah. And oh my God, there's like, I feel like definitely like my mind is in a fog very often. And I feel like this is true of so many people, uh, maybe even more people than I think in our culture. And oh my God, there's so many things to wonder about. Is it our food? All these freaking chemicals and like sugars that they're putting in our food. Is it 5G? You know, these towers going up and suddenly there's strengthened radio waves that we know are going through our brains, our physical brains. Is it something more intentional? Um, God, is it just all the garbage we feed in our head of the information age? Are we so inundated that we can't put two simple thoughts together anymore? Because, you know, that's something else talked about in 1984. Prole feed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But um, are we just so inundated we can't structure a cohesive thought anymore? We just feel like, you know, I love that saying, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. (laughs) If you can form a complete sentence and it sounds somewhat intelligible, I mean, it's getting to the point where we are so fucking stupefied and dumbed down that people will follow somebody that, like, sounds even remotely intelligent at this point because <laughs> we're all blind. It's like, whoa, he can barely see. Follow that guy. We're like the Springfield mob. Exactly. And getting back to um, the revolution, something else that, well, I don't read a whole lot, but uh, something else I found unique that Orwell tried to do, well, he did in both books, was that the leaders of a revolution tend to turn on each other just like how Napoleon in Animal Farm turned on Snowball the pig. And, of course, in 1984, Big Brother and uh, Emmanuel Goldstein. And those three other guys. No, yeah. Yeah, so they were like... Aronson, Rutherford, and somebody. Yeah, like five people mentioned that were part of the original revolution. And so three of them, like, they talked about how they tortured him, the Ministry of Love, and they eventually broke him down. And I can't remember if they were executed. I think they were in the end. And then Manuel Goldstein is supposedly the head of this brotherhood. That It's never clear whether there's actually a revolution out there or not. Because one of the things that was interesting, we were really trying to sort through this digital 1984 because they were like, oh, what was that part? And we couldn't find some of it. (laughs) But one of the things that was my favorite parts of this book was O'Brien at the very end. Oh, spoilers. (laughs) Uh, At the very end of, uh, if you haven't read 1984 yet, I don't know what to tell you. Read 1984. (laughs) But O'Brien, at the very end of his interrogation with Winston Smith, um, how he 
said that he helped write this book that's supposed to be this banned revolutionary book, partly written by Emmanuel Goldstein, who's the boogeyman, um, the bad guy. The scapegoat. The scapegoat, which we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, I found that really interesting how both books had the leaders of the revolution turn on each other and one screw over the other one and emerge as like the bigger tyrant. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of how nowadays we have the Democrats and Republicans. You know, so many people I know are so blinded. Like I've got friends on uh, Facebook that are Trump supporters and all they can see if anything that's not Trump support. And anytime they try to debate with me, they, they jump to all these conclusions. I must be a liberal. And they throw all these arguments at me, and I'm like, nope, actually, that's not what I think. Nope, actually, I don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, it's all they can see is the enemy box. And my God, the liberal Democrats do that so much, too. If you don't join their slogans and their one way of thinking, you are a hate monger. And pretty much anything they say or do after that point, you had it coming. It's that same thing to me, this like the powers over us playing against each other. And who knows what's going to happen next. Maybe one of them will emerge as Napoleon and one of them will be the snowball Mm -hmm. cast aside. The scapegoat. Yeah, so Goldstein. um, It's interesting, too, that the image uh, that would be played during the two minutes hate in 1984 of Emmanuel Goldstein, the scapegoat, his face was morphed into the face, the image of a bleeding sheep. And uh, something that actually happened in in our reality, um, in Russia, they would take images of Leon Trotsky, who was the scapegoat for Stalin, I believe, and they would show his image morphing into a goat, like an actual scapegoat. <laughs> and then, of course, an animal farm, Snowball, was the uh, the scape pig. Yeah, and that was kind of an, another interesting parallel that both books had. Not only did the leaders turn against each other, but one of the leaders of the revolution became a scapegoat. They didn't just cast him aside and kill him and that was done. They kept his name or his imagery alive to rally the people. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the bad guy. And I think about, you know, all the times in my life that we've had scapegoats. I remember uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, Of course, Hitler is a well-remembered, still very much used um, bad guy. He's the boogeyman. And by the way, you know, I, I know it's really easy to misinterpret when people talk, like language is such a damn clumsy thing. I'm not saying Hitler is not a bad guy. I'm not saying Saddam Hussein was not a bad guy. Another one, Osama bin Laden. Um, I'm not saying they're not bad guys. I'm saying that by focusing so much of our attention on them as the bad guy, the unspoken implication is we must be the good guys. Mm-hmm. There's the bad guy. It reminds me of that, sc- that scene in Scarface. You remember where he's like all on drugs and he goes in the, the diner or that, that fancy restaurant and he's surrounded by all those rich people. And he's like the big drug lord from Colombia and not mm-hmm. fitting in. And he finally like just like throws his chair aside and starts yelling at the people like, you know, like, oh, look at me. I'm the bad guy. <laughs> now you can point and say, there he is. There's the bad guy. Yeah. <clears throat> and I felt like he was kind of saying the same thing, you know, like because he's the bad guy. They must be the good guys. Mm-hmm. So the boogeyman. There was oh, also. And, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple more uh, boogeymen. Um, well, actually, only one more. You know, we're now we're, we got Trump. 
Mm. So there's the Trump supporters, and God damn, I mean, so many of them, what a bunch of freaking idiots, you know, that most of them are. Not that the other side aren't a bunch of freaking idiots, but the way the people that hate Trump point to him and like, he's killing America. Look what he's doing to this this country. Look what he, the, the things he's doing to the environment. And I'm just exasperated. I'm like, the way you're talking, it sounds like we were living in Pleasantville before Trump showed up. <laughs> like it, everything was just going so good. Why'd he have to mess it up? Yeah. And as long as we're, we're focused on the boogeyman, we miss the bigger picture. We will never be able to fix the problem if we keep getting distracted by these assigned boogeymen. And I feel like that's something that George Orwell was bringing our attention to all those decades ago is the tactic of the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. There was also capital punishment if leaders were displeased. If anyone stepped out of line, you could be vaporized. You could be neutralized, yeah. unpersoned. Hung. Suicided. Or the dogs could jump on you and rip you to pieces. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else to say about that? Nope. There was also pointless work, um, such as when Winston's uh, nothing job was happening at the end there of the novel, as well as at, during hate week. And then an animal farm, the, uh, the windmill that the animals were forced to build over again. And I like the way that, remember how the windmill kept getting destroyed? Mm. And, and it's he, Snowball's fault. Yeah, it was always Snowball's fault, which didn't make a lot of sense. But it was never actually said in the book that Napoleon was doing it. Mm. You know, I, I had the feeling reading it that Napoleon was behind it to keep the animals busy working um, because Snowball never showed up again. Snowball was kind of not a presence except for Napoleon and through him, Squealer, keeping that memory alive is worse and worse. You know, the growing boogeyman. Um, and yeah, the pointless work. My God. And even before Winston, you know, hate week was getting ready for hate week and everybody was working overtime to get ready for hate week. Um, when he was working at the Ministry of Truth, he said that when he was getting something to change, he had the feeling, even though he didn't know because nobody knew what anybody else was doing, that several other people were working on the same thing, you know, and they would just pick something, you know, it's like, oh, this is the one. So that pointless work and man, the parallels to what we have now. Anybody noticed a Walmart greeter lately? <laughs> you know, I mean, just how many of our jobs are pointless? How many of our jobs have they developed technology? And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but they're just keeping us busy. How many times have you had an, heard an argument that one of the reasons we don't switch over to fossil fuels from fossil fuels to the green energy, which of course is another form of fossil fuels more quickly, is because it will put people out of work. In other words, we're just keeping them busy. We're giving them a way to play the game. Yeah, and that's really important um, in, bo in both of the books, too, when it comes to talking about class privilege um, for the inner party in 1984, as well as the pigs in Animal Farm. In both situations, more could have been given to everyone to make lives more comfortable, so to speak. Um, comfortable meaning that people or animals are not just scraping out a life, just merely surviving. Um, but then those comrades would possibly have time to think. And so if they're kept just barely scraping by, 
and just busy enough with their distractions and just busy enough with, in, uh, in 1984, the bombings, just the random bombings and all that goes with, uh, having kind of a, a difficult life. If they didn't have that, they might actually be able to think about stuff. And if they thought about things deep enough, they might even start to rebel. And I, rem- I remember in, uh, I think it was Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps, you were talking about getting that time back, trying to, to gain some of your time back in your life so that you could actually think things through and realize what nonsense we're living. Yeah, that... That reminds me of, uh, I mean, obviously in Animal Farm, the pigs broke every single one of their original commandments and turned them into privileges for themselves. And I guess we're going to talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about that in a minute. Um, but in 1984, I think it was 1984 that he said, he kept saying, Winston kept thinking that the only hope was the proles. Yeah. Because the outer party, which is equates to middle class, is so busy trying to be the inner party, the middle class, and the... Um, the inner party, the upper class, is so busy trying to protect itself that there's no hope of of real revolution in these these parties. The structure is the 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 matrix has them. They're in the trap. And uh, yeah, that that class privilege, I thought that was really interesting. And you you mentioned our our episode, escaping society in five easy steps. Um, yeah, I definitely think a big part of getting free of that trap is to reject the whole paradigm. You can't be trying to have their toys because the only way to have their toys or distribute them in what you think is a more equal, fair way is to become them. Yeah. You've got to reject the whole freaking thing. You don't need their toys. You've got to embrace poverty. You've got to, to, you know, like, well, we'll talk more about the proles and stuff. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Like the scavenging, the upcycling, the foraging, um, so many of the things we're trying to explore and so many of the things we haven't started to explore yet and we're looking at, um, it's all about getting free of that yolk, that, that chain around our necks the and yolk. getting that time back, not, not keep having, let, letting them keep us so busy. And something else that was mentioned, um, you said the middle class, that was actually the, the one group of people that the inner party was most concerned with starting the rebellion, because according to the book, um, in 1984, Emmanuel Goldstein's book, those were the people that in general started the revolutions was the middle class. That's right. That's where that was being talked about what I was just talking about. And I'm not sure I agree with that part. I think, I wonder if that has changed since Orwell's time, because what I see in the middle class are what our culture calls the most educated people. But what I think education means, and here's that doublespeak, you know, education sounds really positive. We need to educate people. (laughs) But when you have a culture that has the values that we do, what education means is indoctrination. We need to condition these people. And when I see people that come out of college, um, they seem like the most indoctrinated. And I think maybe what we're seeing in, in our culture are a bunch of Mr. Parsons, which was another character in the book that was kind of brief, but uh, I don't know how to impact on me because he was just a big blubbering, (laughs) ignorant member of the outer party or the middle class. And he just kind of was, I don't know, 
he wasn't all there. He couldn't figure things out. He was just kind of going through the motions and basically eating everything that the government fed to him, spoon-fed to him. Yeah, and as I said, that I felt like the middle class is more indoctrinated. That doesn't quite sit right with me. They are indoctrinated through what they call education and I call indoctrination, but I'm not sure the lower class, the proles, the poor people are much better. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's something Teresa and I, actually we were you know, traveling around places that used to be free campsites and they oh, have recently God. been closed, like all these wonderful free campsites and they got closed. And so um, at first I was really pissed that they're closing all these free campsites and you might say my anger is directed towards the authority at that point. I don't know what that would be considered. Possibly middle class, the servants of the upper class, um, but not the poor. You know, you don't consider the, the legislators, the rangers, whatever, is the poor people. But then I started seeing what the poor people have been doing to these sites. And Teresa and I are actually kind of discussing how much of it is like white trash, you know, like the poor people coming up here that just don't give a shit, that throw their beer bottles everywhere, that set up their tents, don't even bother to clean up their campsites. I mean, at all. There's like mattresses out there. There's entire tents. I don't know where they got this stuff and how they can just abandon it. But also the college kids. So I guess that might be the middle class, you know, the people that just go out there and are so freaking entitled that they don't care. But whatever it is, you know, Winston Smith kept saying the only hope is through the proles. I'm not sure I see hope in any category anymore. It's like everybody is just so screwed up. Whether you get get indoctrinated through college and you feel smart, or whether you get indoctrinated through Jerry Springer and television, and you might not feel smart, but you're equally as indoctrinated. Mm. It's like, I don't know, it seems like every every layer of that lasagna is lost. And something else, um, just to finish up this thing about uh, class privilege that was in the book, 1984, it was talking about there was, uh, they were wondering what to do with the excess of commodities, um, food and clothing, like shoes, razor blades and all of this. And they could have, like I said, they could have easily distributed it, um, more equally among the people, but instead they kept this never ending war going, so they could not only soak up the supplies, the food, the clothing, etc., but also the labor. And like you mentioned, to keep people busy because, you know, during this COVID pandemic stuff, people are out from work or I don't know what's going on, but there are a lot of people that I talk about getting your time back. But um, like Gumby said, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people messing stuff up now, and I, I'm not sure if it's because they're out from work and they're, you know, desperate and they're trying to, like, live in the woods or I don't know what's going on, but there's a lot of people wandering around aimlessly screwing shit up right now. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> up here in the mountains and, like, there's a lot of people that seem to have gotten their free time back, and <laughs> it's not a good thing. There's, like, what would you say, at least 10 times as many people up here, like, I mean, we see more people up here on a weekday than we saw last summer on a weekend. Yeah. And say nothing about the weekends. They are crazy. I mean, there's traffic jams up here. I can't believe there are traffic jams up here. Maybe that's something that used to happen like during autumn, during leaf peeping season. 
but not last summer when we were up here. Not not summers before when I've been up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. And yeah, so I I don't know. I I'm like you. I'm not. I'm kind of losing hope. I have bright days, and sometimes I just I'm like, I want to cry. Um, another book that. Uh, we didn't reread. I know I read it in the past, just like I had read 1984, but I do not remember much of anything except that I read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And his book actually came out before 1984. Um, his book came out in 1932. And I was reading an article somewhere, and it was saying that in Brave New World, they kept citizens in check less with intimidation, but more with addictive drugs and pleasurable distractions. And instead of restricting information, they published so much of it that it was distracting, overwhelming, and even numbing. Um, And that leads me to our catchy slogans Mm -hmm. in both books. Yeah, both books employed catchy slogans to employ, to uh, control the population. Um, The main one in Animal Farm and the sheep represented this as any time something got brought up at a meeting that was uncomfortable that uh they didn't really want to talk about the sheep would just kick in and uh what was it four legs good two legs bad (laughs) and they just say that for like it said like five minutes or ten minutes you know and by by the time they got done it's like what the hell were we talking about (laughs) the catchy slogan just drowned them out and uh in 1984 you know you had a lot of catchy slogans what was uh some of the ones you remember from 1984 well, the the three party slogans: "War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength." Those were the three that were really hammered into you. And there was also one about our new happy life that was always playing from the telescreens, because of course, with the uh, the revolution and uh, Big Brother, everything was better. Yeah, and think about like all the catchy slogans we're inundated with. I'm sure. Wherever you're listening, anywhere in the world, your country employs catchy slogans to just, like, grab you and and keep you. Um, but I'm going to talk about some of the ones we have here in America. You know, make America great again. <laughs> of course, that's one that has been brought back. Ronald Reagan used it. So it got revived. Apparently, it was such a good catchy slogan. Um, as we were studying the presidents, apparently catchy slogans really started becoming a thing way back with... Uh, was it William was Henry? William Henry Harrison. Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Um, that was their catchy slogan, and people just love saying Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Mm. Tippecanoe was Harrison's nickname. Um, and from that point on, almost every president has had a catchy slogan. You know, we've got uh, Hoover, a chicken in every pot. Mm. We got I like Ike. You know, and we got uh, Obama. I feel like he had a, a slogan that I can't remember, but you know, you've got all these stickers. Hope. Yeah. Hope. Things are going to get better. Look, we have a president that is exactly the same as all the rest of them, but he's black. Hope. Things are going to change. And not only did they not change, they got even worse, just like all the presidents. He did a splendid job being a president because apparently that's their job, including things got worse for the black people who had the most hope that finally, finally, you know, this is what the, the Democratic thinking drums into us. We need to see more people that look like different people everywhere. We need a gay person here. We need a person of color here. We need this person over there, a woman here. It's going to be so different. But again, it's almost another version to me of that boogeyman. You know, the problem is you're not seeing your face up there. If you did, it'd be so different. But the thing is, 
whether you're gay, whether you're black, whether you're a woman, whether you're a gay black woman, <laughs> we're all being indoctrinated in the same mold. So as soon as you get up there, you say the same shit everybody else says. That's not the fundamental problem. They don't mind addressing these things because who cares if they have to change the paint job? The war machine keeps running. Yeah, it goes back to that power for power's sake. And in the in 1984, um, one of the characters, okay, again, spoilers, O'Brien, um, talks about, you know, in the past, uh, they, they mentioned like Hitler and uh, Stalin and um, some others. And they said, you know, they may have tried to tell the people that their dictatorship was for them, for a better world, to help make things great again or to to instill change for the betterment of the country and of its people. But in 1984, we're telling you right now, we don't give a shit about y'all. <laughs> we want power. And the only way we're going to keep power is to keep focusing on power. We don't care about the people. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's a really strong parallel to what's happening. Like you said, no matter what the candidate looks like, what party they belong to, or what their background is, if they're running in a political office, I feel like they're running because they want to have power. And if they say it's for the people, well, so did Hitler, so did Stalin. Yeah, if you really want to see somebody with a different face up there that would actually represent change... Vote for Gumby. Just kidding. (laughs) Pull somebody from, like, one of these tribes that's still living on the land. Pull somebody from the Yanomama tribe. Run that person. Mm -hmm. That would be different. Yeah, that would be a difference. Because all of us, with all these different colors and sexual preferences and, oh, this splendid land of opportunity, this, this... Melting pot. So many different people all saying the same stupid shit. All living the same stupid lives. If you're poor, you want to be rich. If you're rich, you want to be richer. And I don't care who you are, that's the ladder we climb in this culture. It just doesn't work. You know, we're, we're being distracted. Another parallel, if you're ready to move on. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. That I found in both books that was really interesting is history is rewritten. Mm-hmm. Both books. Um, it was Winston Smith's job. So 1984 was written after Animal Farm. I feel like Orwell wanted to bring more attention to that. The main protagonist. It's his primary job to rewrite history. <laughs> so it's like that's a big part of that book. But it was not at all absent from uh, Animal Farm. Yeah. And the big history that gets rewritten is Snowball. Snowball, as he's you know, one one of the leaders of this revolution actually has the idea of the windmill for the animals, the animal farm. Now, I don't I don't think a snowball is a good guy, a good pig. Um, I kind of got the feeling from him he was just sort of poised to exploit the animals in his own way. He just didn't get to the punch in time. Hmm. Um, but you know, he fought in this battle the first time the farmers, Jones and some of the other farmers, came onto the farm, and he actually got shot like. Some some buckshot or, or um, bullet pellets scraped his back and left scars. He was a hero. They gave him a medal. And then over time, as they're retelling the story, they retell it so often, and each time, Snowball is more and more and more of a villain. They rewrite the history of Animal Farm until by the end, even um, Boxer, the horse that was like 
one of the, the, the few animals that was like, that's not the way I remember it. Even he couldn't be sure anymore. He's like, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. They got his head in that fog we're talking about. Maybe the 5G towers went up in England. <laughs> um, but yeah, so by the end, Snowball was actually working with the farmers and was not a hero at all. And Napoleon, who was not part of the battle, was leading the charge. He was now the hero. So that was something that I found really interesting is history being rewritten. And also those rules that were written on the wall um, for Animal Farm. I think almost every single one, if not every single one, uh, Squealer would go at night and, like, revise the rules. Like, no animal shall drink alcohol was the rule. And then Squealer, uh, once the pigs were found out to be drinking, he painted after it to excess. Yeah, all the rules, you're right, slowly got changed. Even Mm -hmm. the sheep. Remember, like that was the basic because the sheep couldn't remember all seven of the commandments. So all they could remember was that four legs, good, two legs, bad. But then they changed it. Do you remember what they changed it to? No. It was something like, I can't remember, but even that basic, um, simple statement got revised. And by the end, the last commandment that got changed, um, I think her name was Clover, the Mm -hmm. horse. Yeah. She brought Benjamin over to the barn and said, I'm not sure, and I can't read that well, but this looks different to me. And they even changed the last one that says, all animals are created equal. And they added, but some are more equal than others. Yeah. So, yeah, every single bit of it, history got rewritten. And my God, that's always been the case in our culture. I'm sure George Orwell was like, you know, saw all kinds of parallels in his time. A lot of people say he was just writing about Russia. I'm sure he was in part writing about Russia, but I bet he saw the same thing in England. He saw like just this tactic that gets used by empire, by whoever's in charge. Um, And man, aren't we having a battle right now about Confederate flags (laughs) and about statues and what these statues mean? And like, let's target this statue, but not that statue. And, you know, like what? All these places in history, who owned the slaves? Who has been slaves? What time period shall we focus on? What, which, which thing over here will be, we be outraged by? Let's get outraged about this injustice over here and ignore all these species being wiped off the face of the planet as if it's just a, well, that's too bad. That's not an injustice. I mean, what you going to do? You going to give up your MTV, as Derek Jensen might say? No, nobody's going to do that. So let's get mad about this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's just history getting rewritten. You know, like I think about the Indian Wars. It used to be cowboys and Indians. So the Indians were the bad guys. All movies depicted that. The Indians show up, the cavalry comes rushing in, and here's the hero music. Da-da, da-da! They come rushing in, and everybody in the audience cheers. And now, almost every movie takes the opposite side. You know, every movie is like very sympathetic towards the Indians. And of course, I'm not saying like. I am more sympathetic to the Indians. I believe in that case, I believe we've gotten closer to what might be truth. But who knows? Who really knows what history consists of? Because it seems to me, no matter which way you look at it, you look at it in a way to kind of empower your own agenda. Yep. And I've seen history change. I've even seen it like with the way we picture dinosaurs. I've seen history change so much. In my lifetime. 
So I thought that was a really juicy, interesting, powerful thing that he wanted to express in both books. Watch history change. The past is not fixed. Yeah, and um, I wanted to talk about some of the predictions that Orwell made in his books, um, like the never-ending war on terror and like easily rewriting history. I mean, think about in the digital age that we're in, how easy it is to block uh, certain people uh, saying certain things, censor them. In 1984, the term historical negationism was used uh, to kind of get rid of things that didn't add up for the present. So they had to negate things in the past. And, uh, and again, like we were talking about before, people who are growing up now that were born in the, let's say the year 2000, in the year 2000, they're now 20 years old. But think about like Gumby and I, we're around 40-ish and we've got 20 years of history on them. And maybe they think for the first time, you know, this revolution is happening. For the first time, people are speaking out about fill in the blank. And that is just simply not true. And so by negating some of the things in history, by kind of glossing over them or even turning them around to the benefit of whoever's in power now, we are really doing a disservice Um to the future generations. But then again, like Gumby said, or I don't know if you said it exactly like this, but it really doesn't matter as long as we're focusing on still questioning what's happening now. I just read a book called uh, Laika's Window, and Laika was the, I might be mispronouncing it, but it's the first living being that was um, in orbit, that was flown up into space, and she was a dog that the Soviets sent up named Laika. And it was really talking about animal experimentation and stuff. And again, here's something like they want us to rally behind this idea of exploring space, this noble human aspiration. My God, it's human nature. We've got to explore something. It's what we do. It's what we do in this culture. And it's because we're always dissatisfied. It's never good enough. It's not what every human being has ever done on the face of the planet. For a lot of people, things have been good enough a healthy place to to grow, to be, to hunt, to raise your children. That's what a lot of human beings have wanted. So we're taught that the human initiative, the human aspiration, and it's such a good thing, is to explore that next frontier. But I read all kinds of shit that I'd never been told about the, the beginning of the space program. Of course, I heard about Sputnik. Of course, I heard about the space race. Of course, I heard about Neil Armstrong and One Small Step for Man. And one giant leap for mankind. I didn't hear about the first dog being um, rocketed up there and that they did surgery to take her carotid artery from her neck and bring it outside and put it under a flap of skin so they could keep up with her uh, like readings to see how she's doing up there and then how she was cooked alive, that she died slowly and painfully from heat. I didn't read about all the chimps that got sent up. Well, I did. I have heard about the chimps that got sent up in America, but I didn't hear about the first two, um, God, Ham and Enos, and how, especially with Enos, they called him Enos the penis because he kept playing with his dick, but <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. But the way they got him to pull these levers to see if an astronaut could function in space, they attached shock pads to his feet. Oh so if God. he did anything wrong, they would shock, and how once they got him in space, it malfunctioned. 
So this chimp is going around in orbit. One of the first animals the U.S. sent up there. And these these shock pads are going off, even though he's doing the right things. And the only thing he's ever been taught to do to stop these shocks is to pull these levers. So he's pulling them quicker and quicker and feverishly quicker. He's panicking. Shock, 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 shock. They're just zapping him. I didn't hear about that. Why? Is this not important? It's because that's not the narrative. That's not the history they want us to know. Because that kind of shit doesn't get us excited about the space program <laughs> or science. Ooh, science. <sighs> yeah. Um, the thought police. Political correctness. Cancel culture. Was that in both books? Well, I was talking about predictions now. We've moved on from from comparing the books. Oh, well, I got a few more things. Oh, okay. Um, and... I'll try to go through these quick, but another thing I saw parallel in both books was that the bad guys won in the end. Both books left me almost ready to break something because mm. I wanted a hero to come forth. I wanted a serious challenge, and Winston Smith never got off the ground. You know, he just got broken, and at the end, he loved Big Brother. And there was never really somebody who came forward in Animal Farm. Benjamin was the closest when they took um, when they Boxer. Took- Oh, yeah. When they took Boxer away, Benjamin, for the first time in the book, ran around and started telling everybody, look what they're doing. My God, can't you guys see? Look, look, they're lying to us. That was the only outright rebellion I saw in the whole book. And even he, you know, cynical old Benjamin, the mule, um, just kind of gave up, you know. And what he kept saying is it's always been bad. It always will be bad. That's what I expect. It's like the precursor to Eeyore. (laughs) So... Both they were books, both donkeys. <laughs> yeah. Both books were, were pretty pessimistic, I thought. Good. Really profound. But yeah, the bad guys won in the end. Um, and yeah, we talked about the fascism taking place after a revolution, or we might be misusing the word fascism. And, you know, I think about all the revolutions, you know, we've got the, the agricultural revolution, the French revolution. Um, the Bolshevik revolution, the industrial revolution, the American revolution. Each one of these... Like, I feel like there's a big warning in these books. Beware the revolution. Mm. You know, maybe we need something else. Maybe we don't even know what it is. But anytime a revolution gets going, I'm not going to say it fails every time, but almost every time it's not an improvement. It's a different kind of tyranny. The American Revolution was supposed to free us from England. And what has happened in the 250 years since? We've become worse than England. We pollute more. Um, We just are more of a colonial power of violence. We, we've dropped nuclear bombs on other people. England didn't do that. So beware the revolution, I feel like is a message in both books. Um, manic loyalty and effusive confessions. You know, that was in both books. Just people blindly loyal to this horrible system and how in both books they had people so willing to just confess You mentioned Parsons in 1984. Mm -hmm. You know, he was like, oh, thank God they stopped me. I'll tell them anything they want. I'm I'm just glad they, because he was saying things in his sleep, down with Big Brother. Or at least his daughter turned him in for that. He's not even sure he said it, but he assumes that he did. Yeah, his daughter, part of the little spies. Junior spies. Junior spies, you know, patriotically turned in her father for saying this in his sleep. And he was grateful. He was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I had this sickness. They're going to cure me. Mm -hmm. So confessions, effusive confessions. Um <clears throat> and that was the same in Animal Farm. I think the there were ducks and geese. 
that confessed. Yeah, they just lined up. Even when the dogs, the nine dogs that Napoleon had raised, tore them to pieces, another one would stand up and confess. And presumably they were confessing things that probably they didn't even do, you know, because they were confessing being in alliance with Snowball, which nothing in the book gave me any reason to think that Snowball was actually out there hmm. laying siege to Animal Farm. Um, declarations of improvements as things get worse. This was in both books. That even as the food got shorter, even as conditions deteriorated, even as they had to do with less and less, all they heard were news reports, bulletins about how good things are getting. Things are better than they've ever been before. Look to the new leaders. That was in both books. Um, and two bad guys that they keep switching around. It was East Asia and Eurasia in 1984. Yeah. So we're friends with one. We're enemies with the other, and presto, now the war is with the other. So it's they say it's always been that way. <laughs> you saw the same thing, Napoleon doing the same thing with the neighboring farms. He had uh, Mr. Frederick at Pinchfield Farm and Mr. Pilkington at Foxwood Farm. And he would be on good terms with one, on bad terms with the other. And as soon as that switched around, he'd start saying he was actually never on good terms with that other. It was a ploy. It was a gimmick. Um, that guy was always screwing him over. Hmm. So... All those things are in common in both books. So when people tell me these books are so different, I see so much more similarity than difference. But I just wanted to finish my similarities list. Yeah, those were good. Um, so, yeah, so we were talking about, like, predictions. So the never-ending war on terror, um, being able to easily rewrite history, especially in the digital age. And then uh, I had mentioned the thought police, political correctness, and cancel culture. Gumby, you want to say anything about those? Well, yeah, the thought policing, you know, they were one of the scariest elements in 1984 that these people would even crime think, you know, that if you thought about doing a crime, if you thought in a way that might lead you to do a crime and not follow Big Brother and love Big Brother, the thought police would um, take you away, torture you, break you down. And um, it was chilling hearing O'Brien describe what they were really doing, you know, like the how the only way for them to be powerful is to have an enemy. So they kept the idea of a revolution alive. It makes me think of all of us on uh, social media and all of us doing podcasts. You know, you got Derek Jensen out there. Now we've got this great word. We're actually part of the above ground resistance. So, <laughs> woo, we're, we're not just like complaining. We're doing something. But are we? It makes me, me wonder what place we actually have in this this government, you know, that I wonder if it just allows us to do this. Because think if they shut down the above, what we're calling the above ground resistance, we'd be forced underground. And what's the underground resistance? It's people who actually do things. <laughs> so this is like a pressure valve. Yeah. Of release. course, we all want to be part of the above ground resistance. We still get to like have our quote, freedom. We get to watch our favorite TV shows. We get to go outside and admire what's left of the wildlife as we help destroy it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it feels like a pressure valve to me. Mm -hmm. So the thought police, and what do we have in our culture now? We have cancel culture. You better think whatever the, the dominant value system is. Or even if it isn't the dominant value system, but it's the loudest, like the squeakiest wheel. Because I'm not even sure what the consensus is, if there was a some sort of study that was conducted uh, with different, you know, 
sections of the population, whatever that even means, to see, like, what do people think about this or that uh, controversial topic? Yeah, what was that thing that Winston wrote in his diary about 2 plus 2? Oh, freedom is the freedom to say that 2 plus 2 make 4. If that is granted, all else follows. And to me, what he's talking about, and Teresa and I discussed this a little bit this morning, that in different cultures, 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. I don't think he's talking about that in an existential way, because I believe in a lot of ways you could make a really good argument that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. What Winston's describing is the freedom to follow what your own eyes, your own common sense tells you. If you have the freedom to do that, then all else follows. Now, I'm going to say some things that are really unpopular in our culture right now, and you can condemn me, and I have been condemned before, but this is just what my own eyes tell me. I don't believe people get born into the wrong bodies. I just don't. I don't believe some accident happens in nature or God, or whatever you think determines that, and whoops, damn, we weren't looking. You got born in the wrong body. Thank God we have science to surgically correct that. I don't believe it. (laughs) That doesn't mean that I'm going to try to stop anyone from making that decision on their own. That doesn't mean that I feel like they should be beat up or hindered in any way. It means I disagree. My own two eyes tell me that that doesn't make sense. That's me. That's my truth. But if I say that, And I've had someone attack me, um, contact my employer and try to get me fired and say I shouldn't work with kids for holding that belief. I felt like Winston Smith at the end where where O'Brien is saying, how many fingers am I holding up? And if he says anything other than um, I don't know or asking him, how many fingers are you holding up? If he says four, he gets tortured. He gets tortured. He gets tortured. This is basically cancel culture. It is the thought police. Um, Here's another thing I believe. I believe that all lives matter. I have been called a racist for saying that. There might be other people who are racist who are using that that slogan. I don't. I'm not going to let them have it. It's common sense. All lives matter. If somebody else is twisting that into something else, that's their fucking problem. When you tell me that black lives matter, and if I say all lives matter, I am acknowledging that black lives matter because by definition, they are part of all lives. What I'm not acknowledging is that that is the most important thing happening, not when 200 species are going extinct every day. Because guess what? If we get complete justice for every black person in America and we don't do something about the 200 species going extinct every day, we're all dead. (laughs) I can't, my own common sense, two plus two equals four tells me that doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And I've had people say, oh, well, I'm concerned about both. Bullshit you are. I see what people will do to rally behind the one thing and how little they will do to address the other. We're all doing far too little to address the 200 species going extinct every day. And you can get attacked for having that simple truth that all lives matter. That is cancel culture. You can get fired from your job. You can be called a hate monger. And that leads to something Ted Kaczynski was very critical of, political correctness, thought policing, the way we're taught to say things. And I was taught a politically correct way to talk about Indians was Native American, only to find out later they don't even fucking like that. They see that as a piece of colonist propaganda. It wasn't America when they were here before. They don't want to be named after the colonizing force. They'd rather be called Indians. So this political correctness, we have the thought police here. It doesn't look exactly like it does in 1984 yet, but it's something to beware of. 
And it's something to be concerned about. Because when you're forced to see something with your own eyes and you're scared to say it out loud, you're scared to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's a fucking problem. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Um, Something else real quick that goes along with uh, rewriting history. I should have said this with it, but photoshopping, removing unpersons from uh, pictures. Because we all know that's done in various ways and means. Um, telescreens. Orwell died in 1950, and I'm pretty sure like the 50s were the heyday of uh, television sets getting getting put into um, homes. But he wrote the book um, prior to that. It was published in 1949. So um, just the idea that telescreens could um, allow people to spy on you. They could even measure your heart rate, which we have now devices, uh, you know, electronic technology that does that. Um, kind of reminds me of Edward Snowden um, and his uh, revelations about the NSA spying on us. And I read this uh, in, I think, a Wikipedia article, November 2011, the U.S. government argued before the U.S. Supreme Court to continue using GPS tracking of individuals without first seeking a warrant. Um, and, and why is this even possible? Because unlike 1984, instead of the state, the government requiring this technology, we pay for the privilege mm-hmm. of constant surveillance, of constantly being watched. Yeah, they. Uh, I think in some ways... Orwell didn't foresee how good they were going to get at this shit. (laughs) They don't force it on us because that encourages resistance. They sell it to us. They make us beg for it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess the final one on my list was uh, going back to the prole feed concept. Um, There was the versificator to generate songs that were just kind of worthless things for the proles to be um, distracted by. And I kind of equate that to today's pop music. Yeah, singing nonsense, American Idol. And there's also been, uh, I actually saw a t-shirt that was, it appeared to be generated in this way. But there were um, news stories not too long ago about t-shirts being sold online through very uh, well-known companies. Like, I don't know if it was Abercrombie or whatever, some company rich people buy their clothes at, but... They were generating T-shirts with some sort of computer program, and there were very derogatory, uh, nasty things being put on the shirts. I remember that. And it's from a computer. <laughs> it's like no one's even paying attention. They're just cranking out T-shirts. They're just like, oh, the computer's you know doing this program today. So, yeah, um, just talking about prole feed. And the proles were, and I say are also, um, apathetic, uh, ignorant to... Many things that are going on uh, kept busy and or sedated with the prole feed, whether it's uh, random news stories that have no bearing on our lives. Sports. Yeah. The lottery, um, whether it's, you know, alcohol, drugs, porn. But even. Yeah. But have you noticed, especially like it seems to me like more of our time than ever is spent concerned with voting. Yeah. I mean, maybe I just wasn't in the loop when I was younger and other people were like, it was always like this. But my God, I can't believe like just as soon 
as people stop talking about voting, the next election is getting yeah. drummed up. We're always voting for something. It takes so much time and energy. Prol feed. Yeah. You got anything else to add to that? Uh, I'll just say one thing. We were walking through a downtown uh, area, and I just happened to see these two guys sitting on a bench. And one of them, you know, how are you doing? Oh, can I can I ask you for a moment of your time? And I was like, oh, sure, whatever. And he was a uh, census taker guy. And he was asking me if he could, like, if I, if I completed the census. And I said no. And I told him, like, we live in a, a minivan, so we don't even really have, like, a real like address or, or, you know, place that we stay. And he's like, well, where were you on April 1st of this year? And I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) like, I don't want to give out this information. And he's like, well, I mean, could you like give me a street name? I said, I could, but let me ask you something. What is this census even for? Like, what is it to me? What, why should I care about it? Because there's all this talk in the United States about the census. And he said, well, this is how, you know, we make sure that each area has the correct amount of representatives to go to government and uh, to get money for programs for schools and for roads. And I was like, oh, well, then I don't want to be a part of this at all. And the guy that was next to him just started laughing. He was actually kind of laughing the whole time because he thought I was nuts, probably. Mm-hmm. But uh but yeah, I just I I say that because it's another distraction. It's like, oh, we got to get the census stuff. We got to make sure that everybody, you know, is is doing their census so we can have all this information. And I just feel like it's a complete distraction from what are they actually doing with this information? Yeah. Some other things I've uh, I think of when I think of prol feed or social media, of course. Mhm. News um, feed on Facebook. My god, like, you know, I'm one of them. Like, you know, there's the same cluster of people that are on social media, you know, posting those white hot memes, you know, changing the world. And I mean, it just keeps us so fucking busy looking at what other people are posting, posting things ourselves. Um, binge watching. There's a word, uh, a word of modern times. You know, now don't just watch one show, which arguably I remember when you could only watch one show and you had to watch, wait for the next one. Um, people were wondering if TV was bad. You know, people were starting to kind of question like, Wow, is TV raising your kids? And now we've got binge watching. You can watch an entire season. You can watch an entire series. In one sitting. <laughs> My God, that is the definition of prole feed. <sighs> and um, gaming. My God, I, I, I used to like playing video games when I was a kid. I loved Galaga. It was my favorite one. But you put your quarter in, you play for as long as you can stay alive. Game over. Maybe you put another quarter in and play one more, but chances are, all right, you go about your business, you go outside, you ride your bike, you play, whatever. I can't stand the video games nowadays. You spend so much time setting up the video game before you're even playing to create this virtual experience. And who can blame you for wanting to escape the world right now? But my God, that's the last thing we need to be doing. Prol feed is just what they sell to us to keep them in charge and us just gobbling up their shit. We're like, oh, I just had a an analogy in my head. Never mind, I'll let it go. It's probably pretty gross anyway. I think it was. Mm. Um, no, you said gobbling up shit, and I thought of Sherlock. Yeah, I thought something <laughs> even worse. And the information age. Just something else I was just reading about in that Blink book by Malcolm Gladwell, who himself I understand is in some trouble with the trans community for I don't even know what he said along with the author of uh along with Derek Jensen and the author of Harry Potter 
What's her name? Mm, J- Rowling. J.K. Rowling, I think. Yeah, so there's a, plenty of people that have uh, stepped outside of the political correctness. Um, people that I can't imagine said anything too hateful. They just didn't say the right thing the way certain people wanted it said. But again, I don't know what they said, so <laughs> I might be wrong. They might have said something horrible, so don't hold me to that. Mm. But Malcolm Gladwell, he talked about the information age. They've done study after study. His book is about snap judgments, blink, and how often, very often, depending on the context, um, we make better decisions with a snap judgment. If we're given more information than we need, more and more, it will impair our ability to make a judgment. And there's, oh man, so many stories that I could uh, talk about that were shared in this book that are really great stories, but we got a lot to talk about. Um, But one of the things that jumped out to me that I don't think he talked about in the book, but when he talked about too much information impairs our judgment, I'm like, oh my God, we live in what's called the information age. Mm -hmm. We are inundated with information. If I said binge watching is the definition of parole feed, let me correct myself. Um, The information age is the definition of parole feed (laughs) because that feeds everything else. We are so inundated with, with information that we don't have a speck of wisdom. We don't actually know anything. We just are overflowed, overwhelmed with information that doesn't help us. Look around. Look at this world. Is this information age helping anything? But we can't even see that because we're just overwhelmed. Too much information. Too much. I'll tell you one thing. Up here on the parkway and in the mountains in general, um, we don't have, you know, Wi-Fi. We don't we can't even really check the weather because a lot of places don't have Wi-Fi when we go into town or whatever problems. But if you look around you, if you notice the smoke of your fire going a different direction, if you look up at the damn sky and see the clouds piling up, what direction the clouds are moving, that's really all the news I need to know up here. In fact, just this morning, this kind of crazed guy came up and... He was also living in his van. He was also living in his van. Another crazy person in their van. And he was like, did y'all hear about the earthquake that happened yesterday that was right around here? And it's like, nope. And he's like, it's all over the national news. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't. Like, what earthquake? <laughs> yeah. But evidently, it didn't really matter to us because otherwise we would have known about it. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to finish up with the predictions. Like you said, when we were making a list of these predictions a while ago, bet nobody predicted the ecological collapse that's happening now. Yeah, that's something noticeably absent from these dystopian books that uh, Orwell's describing is the ecological collapse. That's something that seemed to really catch on in the late 60s with Rachel Carson. And uh, I don't think anybody would write a dystopian novel now without at least addressing the subject because it is huge climate change. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to read a book where that's completely absent. And I've got a couple other words to talk about yeah. if you're done with nope. that. That's exactly where I was going. I was just going to say like there were some just kind of additional concepts that were covered in the book that if oh. we had parallels to them. We are going over the time that we uh, shoot for, so I'll try to make this quick. But uh when I think about doublethink, um, I tried to address this in our episode, The Upside Down, and didn't feel like I really nailed it in that one. But just a couple concepts that I feel like really exemplify double speak in our or double think in our modern culture: celebrate diversity. Um, as I mentioned before, I hate these bumper stickers. Hate them, hate them, hate them. 
That's my that's my <laughs> five minutes hate. <laughs> because celebrate diversity is always a bumper sticker on a car of someone who will not tolerate values that are not their own. They think they have the monopoly on what a diverse, encompassing uh, ethics looks like. So they have a narrow idea of diversity. Like, I don't care. You can do anything over here and you can do anything over here, but you better not fly that flag. Now, that flag, you know, you might never say like a word that hurts anybody's feelings. You might never support violence against someone else. But the way I see that flag with my Celebrate Diversity bumper sticker, you are hateful. That flag's got to go. That flag over here, that's fine. I love that flag. <laughs> that flag is the right flag. That's the one right way to think. One right way. I just turned Chinese for a minute. That's okay. But, um, and the same thing. I mean, it goes on and on. You know, like, like it's not a diverse set of values. That's not true diversity. So to me, that's double thing because we can all see that if we allow ourselves to see that, but we have people that are holding two different realities and jogging it back and forth, double think, you know, and just completely ignoring one in favor of the other. Uh, real quick, I was just thinking about that biker gang that we kind of ran into the other day. Oh yeah. We were at a Mexican restaurant and there was a biker gang with at least one black guy in the gang. And like, I wouldn't say half the motorcycles, but quite a few of them had Confederate flags. Flying and it was not a problem. Them. These people were getting along fine. It wasn't like the bikers looking at the black guy like, what is he doing here? Or the black guy was looking at the Confederate flags like, that hurt my feelings. He Actually, was part of the gang. Yeah, he was part of the gang. He had his own motorcycle. And the only thing that I heard them talk about is how, wow, we're all going to have to take a shit in about <laughs> a half hour because of that Mexican food. That's reality. And that's not the political crap. You don't see that on the news. What you see is divided people fighting about bullshit symbols while the world goes down in flames. You don't see the biker gang talking about how they're going to have to take a shit in a half hour that don't give a damn who flies, what flag or what color your skin is. That doesn't feed the narrative. Another double double think that really bothers me lately is listen to the scientist. Oh, gosh, I wish people would listen to the scientist. You're not wearing your mask. Don't you know what the scientists say? We both need to wear our mask. They don't work unless we both use them. They're like walkie-talkies. <laughs> My mask protects you and your mask protects me. Yeah, doesn't that sound like something right out of 1984? But actually, I don't think the masks are protecting anyone, and we're getting way too comfortable with being too close to each other. And, by the way, I'm not even trying to get into whether the masks are effective or not. If you want to wear a mask, that's fine. I even wear a mask sometimes because I just, I don't feel like, that's not a battle I feel like fighting. I mean, if wearing a mask, like, makes that many people feel better, fuck it. I can I can suck it up and wear a mask because there's more important things going on. Um, but if you're going to tell me to listen to the scientists and you're going to pose yourself as someone who is like, I listen to the scientists. Why don't you listen to the scientists? Well, let me tell you some other shit the scientists are saying. <laughs> They're saying that the vehicles we drive are destroying the world. They're saying even if you have an electric car, science, trace the lithium batteries to the lithium mines, etc. They're saying if you look at the scientific way that a solar panel is made, none of this is helping the world. The way we live scientifically looking at them where the materials come from. Objectively. Objectively. What they do to the earth. We are destroying the planet. This is science. So don't give me any shit about listen to the scientists. You listen to the scientists. You want me to wear a mask? I want you to give up industrial society. Yeah! <laughs>
One might protect your aging grandmother who's going to die in a few years anyway, and I'm sorry, I hope she has those few years, and I hope they're joyful. The other might save the planet, and actually your children, your grandchildren, everybody's grandchildren. So if you're going to pick and choose which scientists you listen to and which truths you listen to, that's doublethink. Mm. And we need to be smarter than that. Amen. And Newspeak. You know, like that was something in 1984 really quick. You know how they're writing the they kept coming out with the new Newspeak dictionary, new words, new words. Well, we've got all these new pronouns for people because, you know, with all these species dying, environmental collapse, let's make sure we don't hurt anybody's feelings. So, let's let's totally revamp the pronouns we use cuz that's high on the priority list. <laughs> um and let's make a big word out of homophobia. Let's break that down. Homo, uh, gay people, phobia, fear. So let's just say, like me, when you look at people, you just don't believe. It's in your belief system that you weren't born in the wrong body. And I can say, I don't agree with trans people. I just don't. I don't think anything should happen to them. If they want to, you know, take that walk, that's on them. That's their business. I do want to bring it down industrial civilization, which I guess in a roundabout way means you can't have that surgery, among many other side effects for all of us. I won't be able to drive this van either, so I'm not picking on them. Um, But it doesn't make me afraid of you. Homophobia is a very derogatory term. It means you're scared of something. It makes you sound ignorant. Maybe a lot of people who are against gay people, and I know a lot of people who are against gay people, are, in fact, ignorant bigots you know, unsavory characters, but not everyone. Sometimes people just merely disagree. And I can talk to a gay person, a transsexual person all day long, and I can treat them like a human being. We can have a great conversation. If they ask me about that one topic, I'll say, yeah, I disagree. And if they want to hear me, well, we have that conversation. And if they want to move on, enough said. And And I've actually had that conversation with a transsexual person that had a sex change at a tracker course. And he happened to be, or she, because they would go back and forth themselves regretful that they had had the surgery. Mm. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, to tell you the truth. And do we need another label for someone that just simply has a difference of opinion? Yeah. I am not afraid of where someone puts their penis or what anyone puts up their rectum. I am not afraid of what anyone licks or has licked. It doesn't fill me with fear. It's just it's not something that I necessarily want to participate in. It doesn't make me homophobic. It just makes me, I don't know, if we have to put a word on it, what is that, heterosexual? What was that word that that woman used the other day? Gender? Oh, yeah, I like that. Gender atheist. That was in a... (laughs) That was in a Deep Green Resistance uh, interview. And at first I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Is this a new term? You know, what is she talking about? Sure is. But she was a a feminist, and she was saying that she is a gender atheist. She believes in biology, that there's a troubling thing happening right now. And this is – I'm glad you brought that up because this is exactly that new speak, that thought policing, that we are ignoring biology. We are pretending like there's no such thing as a boy and a girl. What you do with your equipment as a boy or a girl is up to you. But the fact is, there is biology. It exists. It is insanity to pretend like it isn't. And so she was saying she is a gender atheist. She doesn't believe in gender. There's no such thing. It's a man-made concept. It really is. It's a, it's a psychological term. And um, again, thinking about future generations or the, the younger generation now, let's say they were born in 2000. 
Gumby, do you remember on like standardized tests, they may ask you your sex and it was M or F, male or female, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think they started saying gender. And then there's also like sexual orientation, whether you're, you know, gay, this, that, and the other. These, all of these things are getting uh, very muddled and confusing. And the whole concept of biology is kind of fallen. That's like archaic. We don't, we don't think that way anymore. We just think about these man-made constructs. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what other people do, but don't force it on me. You're forcing me into a different kind of language. You're forcing me into, I mean, people use language all the time around me that I was, I wish, I wish I didn't have to hear the word green energy, you know? That's a bullshit word that keeps us playing a game that is destroying the planet. It offends me when people talk about green energy. But do I try to, like, stop you from saying the word? Do we all get together and, like, try to police your language? That's the troubling part. That's where the line gets stepped over. And imagine if that's all you knew because since you've grown up, that's how the world has been. Yeah. And it's really troubling. We're being led by the nose. And it's not into a better world. It's... It's just further down the same road we were already on. Um, a couple other new speak words, African-American. You know, mm. I like when people bring up, how come we don't have Irish-American, et cetera? And uh, actually, a conservative guy that I don't necessarily like, but he brought up a really good point, Dinesh D'Souza. D'Souza. Yeah. I decided to read something different, and we read this book, Death of a Nation. And he's strongly uh, conservative, Republican, anti-liberal Democrat. And he's also from India. Yeah. I wanted to see what he said. And he brought up a really good point about how that keeps black people separated. African-American. They always have to be African-American. Doesn't it kind of keep us focused on their skin color? Doesn't it kind of pave the way for, you know, them keeping this word? I always thought it was bizarre when, uh, I was taught never to use the word nigger growing up. It was an ugly word. You never say that. And so I didn't. And lo and behold, as I'm growing up, I'm hearing music blaring through fucking neighborhoods at two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. played by, I think, very confused black people. Nigga that bitch. <laughs> Nigga that hoe. Oh, I mean, horrible shit. And I was told by liberal white people, oh, well, they're taking the word back. It's empowering. <laughs> well, for one thing, I think white people invented the word. So if we're talking about taking the word back, I think white people would be taking it back. But it sounds like, and I'm all for white people, letting that word go. It's an ugly word. But black people, get on board with us. Let the word go. It is not empowering. I mean, to have a taboo word, this is kind of the new speak. And to me, that's built on the same philosophy as that African-American. Let's keep you guys separate. Let's keep you focused on skin color. Let's all stay focused on your skin color. Fuck that. Let it go. Let's work and move into a world where it truly doesn't matter. And I'm not saying I don't see skin color. It's there. I'm saying it doesn't need to be important. Another new speak word, woke. The woke Olympics, you know, this is used in conjunction with uh, cancel culture. Everybody needs to be woke right away. Adopt these new values. Um, That's a loaded word. That's a new speak word. Woke doesn't mean that you realize industrial civilization is killing the planet and you turn away from it, because that's what I would call woke. (laughs) Woke means that you've learned all the new pronouns. You've read the new speak dictionary and you've joined the thought police and you think that everybody that doesn't think like you is a fucking hate monger. That's what woke means. Um, The way it's getting used now, I don't agree with that. This new new speak dictionary. Green energy, I brought that up. 
there is no green energy. Green energy makes us think of plants and good things in nature. Green energy is based on fossil fuels. In some cases, it is even worse than the fossil fuel stuff that preceded it. In very few cases is it at all better, and in no cases is it a solution. Mm-hmm. It's misleading. Yeah, because that was the big argument with the escape. Wait, well, no, sorry. Planet of the Humans was, oh, his information is outdated, and green energy has made such you know, huge strides to being more uh, sustainable. We are willing to believe anything if it means we don't have to give up our Facebook and our gaming and all this crap that we think we need that just so recently, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, nobody needed. There were happy people on the planet. Nobody needed it. There were intelligent people on the planet. They were writing books. They were taking care of their families. They were having sex. There were people on the planet that didn't need this shit that we think we need now, and we will convince ourselves. You know, it's just like in 1984, where eventually the people start doing it to themselves, Mm -hmm. the brainwashing. We will convince ourselves of anything we need to believe to keep us playing this game, including Santa Claus and green energy. (laughs) And I could go on and on in this list. I just wanted to throw out a couple more real quick. Um, Resources. We've got Human Resources Department. Humans are not resources. When you start thinking of humans as resources, that's a troubling step. Natural resources, likewise. This is an objectifying term, and it's very common in our culture. And development. That sounds so good. Mm. Development, growth. Mm -hmm. Things are getting better, coupled with progress. And if you've ever uh, need to reacquaint yourself with what a development looks like, yeah, right after this podcast, you go check out a a development and watch it and tell me how much better it's getting. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess that's all I got to say. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, I'm going to read a listener comment. I think I've been reading a lot of these, uh, Tim from Maine comments, but again, this one kind of fit with the episode. Read it in a Maine accent. I I don't know. I don't even know what that means. Can I do it? Sure. All right. Tim, we like your comments. So hopefully you're not one of these people that get easily offended. All right, I gotta practice. Uh, uh, Martha, Martha White and her blueberry muffins. All right, I think I got it. That's Maine. Yeah, yeah, Martha White. Well, uh, you know, okay. we had our muffins from Martha White's vineyard. Okay. Yep, things will be different. I'm sure the hobo lifestyle will hold up and be different. The whole tracking ID stuff. How will we all adapt to that? Trackers in the vaccine. If you don't take the vaccine to avoid its downfalls, no ID tracer either. Cashless society. You won't have a means to purchase anything in a normal way. Which you still do, I'm thinking. Fuel for the van. Oh my god, this is too good. (laughs) You will be cut off. Hobo will be the new savage. It's crazy to think about. Wow. Tim, did that sound like it? You gotta let us know if if I get if I nailed it. Oh man, Tim, I'm so sorry. But yeah, that was after our um our season five opener, the Icing the Open Road episode, right? And so Tim was just referring to uh, what's what's coming next in this crazy-ass world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> that was Icing the Open Road. Yeah, and no, I was just, I mean, I was kind of leaving it up to you to make any additional comments, but... Uh, um. Well, yeah, I agree with basically what he said. Like, the lifestyle will hold up. There's always going to be God willing, I I can't picture a world where there's not some equivalent to a hobo. And if I try, it is horrifying. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't think civilization will last long enough to exterminate the hobo. And, uh, yeah, it is crazy to think about how the hobo 
might be the beginning of the new savages. And I'm not sure how you're using that term, but I think of it, savages as like indigenous people. Um, because I think what we have now, we're still focusing so much on ethnicity and skin color. And I think we're really holding on to an old paradigm. It's a way of life that is important now. And the people that are living on the fringes, they might become the indigenous people after this all falls apart. It's going to be the way our tribes are set up. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to be able to look what they were before. Nothing has ever looked like what it is before. When people say, oh, are you talking about going back? No, that's not a possibility. I'm talking about learning from what has come before and maybe basing things that worked on those things. And, uh, yeah, we're definitely not free from the money, so... We're uh, concerned about some of these things you mentioned as well. Um, I have no plans to take this vaccine, and I'm really, I don't like the way things are going because it sounds more and more like this is going to be pushed. Um, uh, what I tell people, my biggest argument against the vaccine is I've got more faith in nature than I do the scientists. The scientists have led us astray at every turn. Um, they invent things to increase humans' power, and every time our power increases, bad things follow, including the pandemic itself. Um, this globalized world we live in, this pandemic, this virus spreading all over the world, this is based on things that science has brought us. So um, personally, I don't, I would rather let my body trust my body to do what it's going to do. If the vaccine wins, you got to die of something. You mean if the virus wins? If the virus wins, yeah. And uh, maybe it won't. Who knows? We don't know what's going to happen. I know the scientists have been wrong so often that I wouldn't be surprised if what happens is the people that take the vaccine get even weaker. And maybe the next wave of thing comes through and wipes them all out because we're all coming apart at the seams. And maybe the people that aren't taking the vaccines, their bodies remember how to be strong and fight things. Maybe they're the survivors. I don't know. Maybe not. But I'm going to throw my lot in with nature. <laughs> Me too. And just to finish this up, uh, we have our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. You can check out our new YouTube videos. We're cranking them out. And uh, check us out on Facebook at Escaping Society. And um, if you have any other comments or questions, please send us a message via the website. And thank you so much. Base of England, base of Orland, base of every land and clime. Hearken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. Soon or late the day is coming, tyrant man shall be overthrown. And the fruitful fields of England shall be trod by beasts alone. Rings shall vanish from our noses and the harness from our back. Bit and spurs shall rust forever, cruel whips no more shall crack. Rich is more than mine can picture, wheat and barley, oats and hay. Clover beans and mango wurzels shall be ours upon that day. Bright will shine the fields of England, purer shall its waters be. Sweeter yet shall blow its breezes on the day that sets us free. For that day we all must labor, though we die before it breaks. Cows and horses give
and turkeys all must toil for freedom's sake. Beasts of England, beasts of Ireland, beasts of every land and clime. Hearken well and spread my tidings of the golden future time. For Boxer. Thank mm-hmm. you.